1: Hey, it's Danny again, back letting you know about a special offer for listeners of the show. You can now subscribe directly to Big Mood, Little Mood for as little as $2.99 a month. With that subscription, you get an additional episode of the podcast every Friday, which means more advice, more conversations on relationships, more feelings, more feelings about feelings from the monumental to the minute, and you get all of this ad free. To sign up now for Big Mood, Little Mood Plus, go to slate.com slash mood plus. Again, that's slate.com slash mood plus. Thanks for your support. Hello, and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery. We've made it to the end of the year. This is our last show of 2022, and I'm feeling a little reflective. In fact, I'm reflecting on a few of the memorable letters that we took on this past year. You might be thinking, Danny, are you about to share those letters with us in some sort of best of Big Mood, Little Mood episode? Yes, I'm absolutely going to be doing that. First, I'm going to be sharing a letter with the subject Judge Judy from our show with Ty Mitchell. Because I don't think there's anything as fun as getting really judgmental. After that, it's a letter about deciding whether or not to have a third child with Wendy Lee. To be clear, Wendy was the guest; nobody was trying to have a third child with her. If she wants to have uh, any number of children, I support her in whatever choice she makes. And we'll be wrapping up the show today with a letter that I read with Olivia Charmaine called "A Goosegog" again. And if you're thinking, "How could someone be a goosegog again?" when I've never heard of anyone being a goosegog even once. Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. Before we start with the letters, I do want to thank you all for listening and supporting the show, as well as for sending me your questions, your updates, your weird folksy family phrases that uh, are now rattling in my head as if I were raised with all of you. I couldn't be more grateful. And now here I am with Ty Mitchell. I would love it if you would read our very first letter.
2: Okie doke subject is judge judy i'm a gay man in my late 20s and i've had the same small group of friends since college one of these friends x is gorgeous charming and a serial liar he's cheated on many of his partners and frequently insults others if anyone calls him on it he says he's joking i've tried to talk to him about why he does these things but he will not discuss the idea of changing his behavior he's only ever responded by talking about how difficult his life has been Six months ago, I realized that he wasn't a good friend to have and broke things off with him. My other college friends said that they agreed with my reasons for ending the friendship, but that they felt it was between myself and X and did not concern them. Recently, it came to light that X has been cheating on his current partner. I found myself filled with anger that my friends continue associating with someone who betrays others over and over. It feels like they are co-signing his behavior. When I think it over, though, I'm conflicted. I don't want to play into cancel culture or the cut toxic people off mindset. It's not like they're holding X accountable, though. He refuses to talk about any of it. it is it judgmental to think that X's bad behavior reflects badly on our friends in common? How do I talk to them about this without using ultimatums?
0: How how
1: accurate would you say that this subject line is? Like, Do you think that this person is being a judge, Judy? Or do you think that there's like, a a real kernel of
2: like important truth? Um, I think that calling people or getting called judgmental is maybe a way of skirting another kind of conversation about like, what are our shared values? Mm. Like, what are our share? Do we share a moral or ethical compass? And I think increasingly, culturally, it's hard to sustain close relationships where those things conflict, especially with people with whom you are bonded, not by mutual interests or by that ethical compass, but by the accident of going to the same college. You know, I'm sure among other things that brought them together, since it's not like you're friends with your whole college. And I think that's like, maybe what's at issue here is like, I think this person realized that they don't share there's an untenable conflict of like values between uh, their self and um, X. Um, and now they're questioning if that conflict of values extends to the rest of the people in this friend circle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's useful to think about I want to talk to my friends about this and I want to do it in a way that avoids ultimatums. I think partly that's important because. The letter writer, I think, is already aware they don't have a lot of power here to force a a change. So there's that real meaningful question of, I really can't make everyone talk to X about this. I can't even make them all agree that this is like genuinely bad behavior. So maybe part of the fear there is I don't have the power to cancel anybody, maybe even if I would like to. And so how do I have this conversation in a way that's not just about, hey, I want you to do something. You say no, I give up. Um, and then also that question of like, how do I talk about my concerns without making my other friends feel like I'm saying you are responsible for, you know, this guy cheating on his partners and you're bad as a result. So I, I think that is a useful goal to have because I think A, you're not gonna be able to successfully pull off an ultimatum here and, and B, it it probably wouldn't be super useful. I think, you know, the insulting people stuff sounds really complicated. I could imagine that. The cheating stuff is even more complicated because there's lots of people who would feel like, of course, this doesn't reflect on me if somebody is cheating on their partners. Like, it sucks, but I don't necessarily feel like it's incumbent upon me to say, no, 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 you know, you must never cheat or else you and I can never be friends.
2: Yeah, it's like there's two – there's two – there's the cheating for me is like, you know – it's kind of none of your business. But the fact that this person is also an asshole who insults people and then writes it off as a joke is like a good reason to say like, I can't be friends with you anymore. If you continue to like act like this, it sucks. It sucks being friends with you. But I think it's a question of like, how many degrees of separation from bad behavior is also bad behavior, you know? And I think it's I think it's like a valid question. But I, I do, maybe I'm, you know, projecting more than I should onto the the caller, writer... But I do get an overwhelming undertone that this person may be growing away from a group of friends that came from an institution that's not predicated on like shared values, you know, and that's okay. It's okay to grow away from a group of people on that basis. And I don't know, if they think you're judgmental because of it, then I kind of think that that's neither here nor there. I don't know, as somebody who has lived many lives and gone through many different circles of friends, and, you know, I feel pretty much fine about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I think the sort of question here is, what do you want and expect from your other friends? Uh, And I think that's going to be a useful thing to sort of dial into before you think about whether or not you want to proceed with having difficult conversations. Um, And and part of that question might involve, you know, do you judge them for not speaking up more strongly to your former mutual friend X? Um, I, I hope that you can give them some grace, some leeway. Uh, not everybody, in you know, seeks out conflict with their friends, especially in their late twenties. And the fact that they're not having a sort of come to Jesus conversation with him about cheating on his like sounds like pretty short term partners. I don't think rises to the level of, you know, you must stop being friends with them. They're they're being terrible people. Um, but, you know, think through, does it hurt my feelings when they say, hey, we get why you stopped being friends with him, but that's as far as it goes? Does that make me feel... Left out. Does that make me feel a little crazy? Like they're saying, yeah, you had good reasons, but we don't give a shit. Like, does that make me feel like they're just saying something to placate me? Um, but they don't actually think that I had good reasons. And I, I wonder if maybe that's what some of the anger is, is in addition to like, I can't control X's behavior. He does keep cheating on his boyfriends and I really want him to stop. There's also that sense of, well, if you think I had good reasons, but you're not talking to him about any of this and you're continuing to hang out with him, it makes me feel a little nuts. And Uh, you know, part of that could just be they genuinely see multiple angles. Maybe they kind of think you overreacted, but they don't want to say anything to you. Maybe they really disagree and they're just avoiding conflict with both you and X. I don't know what the full story there is, but I think maybe the best thing for you to do is kind of figure out what do I actually want from my friends? Like, not necessarily what do I think I'm going to get, but just do I actually want them to say, you know, not only were you right, but he's really doing wrong things and I'm just afraid to call him out? Like, would that make you feel better if somebody just said, I agree with you, but I'm scared of him? Or would that make you feel worse? Um, Would it make you feel better if someone said, actually, I did try to talk to him about it, it didn't go well, and now I don't see him very much? Would that feel okay to you? Or would that feel like, They were uh, going along to get along in a way that you couldn't countenance. Um, Do you want to have a fight with your friends about them being friends with X? Like these are all, I think, useful, worthwhile questions, not because I think they're going to guarantee that you'll get what you want out of them, but because it will clarify what kinds of conversations you might want to have with them about X. Um, But if fundamentally you feel like you would not be able to stay really close with people who were really close with him, then I think that is probably a sign that whatever you decide to say to them about this, you should also be looking to expand your circle of friends to include other people who don't know this guy um, so that you're not, you know, torching your only social circle.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that if you do decide to, you know, approach your friends more about it, maybe the infidelity stuff is not the best way to lead with that. And maybe the fact that this person is insulting and degrading or... You know, is you know, I think it's a question of like, is it work to maintain a friendship, and where is that work coming from? And if the work is coming from the other person, you should identify what that work is and and why. You know, and, and instead of like, you know, I think with the infidelity thing, it's like he's not really creating work for you by um, cheating on his partner unless you're seeing that partner all the time. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think this person's creating work for you if he's insulting you and degrading you and can't be held accountable for it.
1: Yeah. You know, I I think that's really useful. I I think this is genuinely tricky. You know, uh, I'm really curious, like if your other friends feel, I I don't know what an example of these insults look like. I mean, I can guess, but like one person's frequent insult is another person's fun bitchiness, Um, or it can be fun bitchiness until it turns on you or someone you care about, and then you might have a different uh, way of looking at it. So, Maybe if you do talk to your friends about this, you could ask them what they think of these frequent insults because it's possible that you find them like really upsetting and other people have said, I find it sometimes light and silly, um, or I don't think it's that big a deal. And that might hurt to hear because you don't experience it that way, but it would at least be useful information when it comes to trying to figure out, is there common ground here? But beyond that, you know, if, if he refuses to talk about any of it do you feel like it is then incumbent upon the rest of your friends to force him to talk about it? Or if they can't force him, to all denounce him at the same time. And if that's not a goal or an expectation that you do have, think about what you do. And maybe that's, I want to see some of these people one-on-one, but not talk about X at all. And maybe it's see them very rarely. I I, I really don't know, but I think that that would be then your next move is to figure out what kind of relationship with them can I imagine that doesn't have anything to do with this guy, like that really takes seriously the prospect of, I ended my friendship with him. I'm no longer worrying about controlling or managing his behavior. It's a shame that he doesn't act in the way that I think is best, but I really have tried my level best to change it. I can't. I'm going to truly let that not be my problem anymore. And if you can see your way to spending time with these people outside of seeing them as proxies for continuing to try to manage X's behavior, then I think there's a good chance you can continue to stay friends in the future. And, you know, I also hope you don't hold all your friends to the standard of, like, obviously there's a difficult line because sometimes it's really important to use your social networks to, like, monitor or change somebody else's bad behavior. But there's also a certain level of just, like, People sometimes cheat on their partners. People are sometimes bitchy. People are sometimes rude. And it's not necessarily everybody else's like
2: um, moral slate is going to get dinged if they don't stop them. That's great advice. I, 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 got, I don't have anything to add to that, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just think to whatever extent you can, try to be gentle with the friends who are maybe a little afraid to be harsh
2: with a guy who's gorgeous, charming, and super bitchy. Or don't find it to be as much work, you know, don't find it to be worthwhile, and yeah, and I think that that's like you have a different you have a unique relationship with each person that you have a relationship with by virtue of being you, um and you do have to i think at a certain point respect that other people's relationships with this person are different from your relationship with this person um like like Danny said, it's like it does seem like you need to find ways to either. Engage with this group of friends separately from this person, and or cultivate other kinds of relationships that have nothing to do with this person. Because it's obviously, I think, probably painful to like still have all of this kind of resentment and frustration toward this person, and have them even come up.
1: Yeah, and I think you know that question about is it just uh, unavoidable that. This guy's bad behavior reflects badly on our friends in common. I think the question there that you can ask yourself is do I feel like this is not their best quality that they haven't been able to like truly yell at this guy sufficiently that he stops or do I think it's indicative of as a group they have a lot of qualities that I actually really dislike? Because if it feels mm. like this is actually a part of a bigger problem, I feel like they're all really conflict avoidant and they just have values that I no longer share. That's maybe a sign that You want to invest a little less time in trying to change them and a little more time in looking for new kinds of friends. But if it feels like actually this is just sort of like one area that's not their best and in other ways they're remarkable friends and I really want to prioritize those relationships, then maybe there's more room for having one or two more kind of clarifying conversations saying, you know, I hope that you do challenge him the next time he says something really shitty to someone you care about, but I'm not going to keep bringing this up. I'm not going to keep hammering this point home you figure that one out on your own time and we will, like, focus on our friendship in other areas of our lives, then I think that would be the best way forward. Um, Don't necessarily say that this is the one definitive thing about them is that they have failed to sort of, like, corral this one guy. And I guess, worst case scenario, nobody does anything, but he will someday be less gorgeous and maybe then people will start calling him out. Um, And so you can sort of psychically hope for that day. Purchase necessary. VGW group, Void where prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply.
3: The subject of this letter is two children or three. My husband and I have always planned to have at least three children. We currently have two and love our life as a family. We had been planning to get started on child number three this month when we were blindsided by a tricky diagnosis. It turns out that our oldest child and my husband. Both have a rare genetic condition. My husband has a 50 50 shot of passing it on to any future children. Our younger child does not have it. The symptoms of this genetic condition vary widely. In some cases, like in our case, the symptoms are mild. In other cases, though, the symptoms are devastating and include serious heart and kidney problems as well as other physical and psychological effects. Our genetics counselor told us that there is no predicting the type or severity of symptoms. My husband feels that we have two healthy children and that we should not push our luck. I feel strongly that I want to have this third child and that it is in fact slightly eugenics adjacent to stop ourselves from having a planned additional child. For context, we are financially secure. My husband has a great job and I stay at home full time. We would be able to care for another child. We would appreciate any advice or words of wisdom you could offer.
1: This one is so big in addition to You know, there's this sort of straightforward question of what should this individual couple decide when it comes to their own decision to have a third child or not have a third child, either not now or uh, to potentially put that question to to bed for themselves. Um, But I can also really appreciate um, that this letter writer is aware of there are a lot of, you know, ongoing implications that have to do with disability justice with a proximity to eugenics with this question of, are we being asked to decide like what the good life is for all possible future children? Um, and so I'm also just really aware that this letter writer is asking a question that kind of reverberates on every possible scale. Um, and so I want to be, you know, it feels so like sort of cheesy to say like, I want to be mindful of that, but I do. I would like to be mindful of that. That's, that's sort of where I'm planning on starting today.
3: Yeah, I, we could totally start there. And, and then I'm not even, it even is too tricky. Again, I think I'm just bad at at this, but I'm trying to actually go with this cue from your last podcast with the amazing, is it Grace Bonnie that was on? Yeah. And there was this incredible thing she said about talking to 90 year olds and that they've learned not to judge, not to solve the problem and just to listen. And so I'm going to try to be there for a second in listening to this letter writer. And what I hear I'm saying is that they really want this child. They were planning to have this child. They have problems with now suddenly deciding not to have this child. And at the same time, their husband really does feel strongly the other way. And it was something, it seems something of a time sensitive predicament that they're in.
1: Yeah. I think one of the places that it feels important to me to start with is, um, you know, the letter writer raises this question of like, I feel uncomfortable that this feels adjacent to eugenics um, to not, it, it seems like maybe that my husband wants to not you know, quote unquote, push our luck, doesn't want to have further conversation about it, wants to think of health and like non-health as a sort of binary prospect um, that one is demonstrably better than the other. Uh, and that that should be the end of it. We should be happy with what we have. I want to have a child. I want to have a third child. And I want to talk about our options and our our possible choices that we might make. Um, and I think that that is, is worth discussing, letter writer. I think that it's good to know your own mind to say, I, I want this. Um, I don't know if we're going to find the right compromise right away, but to simply be aware of what do you want and what do you feel prepared for, that's a good thing to know. And I wonder, letter writer, you don't mention whether you or your husband have either had any Uh, people with disabilities in your life, whether you've ever read anything by uh, people within the disability justice movement or whether this is sort of your first encounter with the prospect of, like, disability justice. And so I wonder if that's the case, whether this might not be a good time to do a little engagement with this movement. This is a movement with, like, a pretty robust history, especially in the United States in the last 50 years, um, by which I don't recommend, you know, getting in touch with someone you don't know who you know happens to have a disability and say, make this decision for me. But when it comes to reading Work and thoughts by people who live with disabilities, I would encourage you perhaps to look at some of the work of Harriet McBride Johnson. Um, She's an American author and attorney, a disability rights activist. Um, She died in 2008. She might be sort of best known for a series of debates that she did with uh, Peter Singer. Um, I I don't necessarily want to recommend those in part because I think it's rather painful to listen to someone justify their own existence, um, in a sort of theoretical context. Um, but I would recommend, uh, reading her memoir, Too Late to Die Young. Um, she also, uh, wrote a number of articles for the New York Times. Um, she wrote Stairway to Justice. She wrote Not Dead at All. Uh, she also wrote something that was like, you know, thoughtful and charming and funny called Alas for Tiny Tim. He became a Christmas cliche. Um, I would really encourage you to seek out her work, and and potentially also to seek out the work of other, um, you know, people who work within the disability justice movement, what have been some of their thoughts about the limits of the conversation around genetic counseling um, when it is led by, you know, non-disabled people, Um, not so that you can necessarily like hand a stack of books to your husband and say, you know, these are my arguments, Uh, let's do what I want, but so that you can have a frame of reference that is broader simply than what people who are, you know, not or not yet disabled, I think you know one of the things about disability justice that I'm familiar with is is this idea that many, many people at some point in their lives will develop a disability um, or could benefit from the disability justice movement, so often um, it, it is a sort of like false idea of. You know, I am a healthy person. I will, I do not have a disability. I will never have a disability. This won't affect me. Um, and that can really limit, obviously, um, some of your thoughts, some of your desires, some of your beliefs in what is possible. So that would be, I think, my first suggestion um, is to read more and learn more from people who have lived with disabilities that you might, in the abstract, think of as severe. And, and to let that sort of expand your ideas around what is possible. I think that's a good place to begin.
3: I think that's great, Danny. And also it changes the framework um, from this letter, which is like, okay, it's a 50-50 chance. We lucked out so far with my husband and my uh, one of our sons. And with the third child, we could be lucky or unlucky. You're trying to suggest to the letter writer. If you learned what it actually what people say, what they report, what their experiences, how people are thinking about what it is like to um, be have a disability so-called, or live with, um, care for, uh, have so-called dis- disabled people in our families, that would expand or change the framework. And maybe that would be useful for the husband as well
1: uh, as the letter writer. Yeah, I think the sort of last thing that I would recommend is um, there's a a study published in, um, I actually, this is a little silly, I don't quite know how to pronounce it. I think it's um, Janae Medical Journal, um, but it's by Paul Stephen Miller and Rebecca Leah Levine, and it's called Avoiding Genetic Genocide, Understanding Good Intentions and Eugenics in the Dialogue Between Medical and Disability Communities. And I don't mean to like recommend it in the sense that like I think you must or ought to agree with every uh, claim that is presented there. But again, I think it is very true that within like uh, the eugenicist policy uh, context of the United States and elsewhere, good intentions is is um, is is up there. There are lots of people who talk about like what is best in the interest of eugenicist projects um, and in deciding whether or not somebody else's life or the possibility of somebody else's life is worth living on their behalf. Um, And so again, I think that will be really useful um, in terms of Investigating any parts of yourself uh, or your, or you know your your partner self that might wish to do that, and I say all of that letter writer because I think that is useful and valuable work and will enable you to be um, you know a better like citizen of a society that needs to do more um, for people with disabilities. I don't mean it in the sense of you need to read all of this material so that you and your husband can become better people and then decide to have a third child. Um, I really really. At this point, I want to flip over to these are important and useful questions, and it is also true that you are not making a decision about a third child in the abstract. You two are also talking about what you are prepared to do, um, whether or not you think you would be good, excited, you know, enthusiastically consenting parents to a third child. If you have these conversations and your husband says, I don't want to, um, I would not be prepared to handle that. You know? Again, then at that point, the question is, if you don't think you can adequately parent a child um, if they have circumstances that you can't control, then that is a good reason not to have that child. So again, like, it's not about if you don't decide to have this child, then you are bad people. And if you do decide to have this child, you are good people. Um, I, I want you to have more tools at your disposal when you have these conversations and don't immediately discount the prospect of, like, excitedly and joyfully preparing for a child who may very well experience any number of complications from this particular diagnosis but you know the investment there is not only good people would say yes and only bad people would say no on that level it does really need to be about honest frank assessment of like what is your husband afraid of what are his fears Can he get specific with them? If you share with him, I share that fear, but I also would feel like really prepared to like dedicate time and attention to our child's care. Does he have a response to that? You know, um, that's those are really important conversations to have.
3: Yeah, and I I would add on to that. And I'm sorry before I I misspoke by saying your son doesn't have serious symptoms. I think you just the letter writer just refers to two other children, but it. It's your whole family. So I think Danny was totally right in saying, it's important that you know that you feel strongly that you want to have this child, that you have reservations about not trying at the same time. It's your whole, it's your whole family. So not just your husband, but your other two children um, that would be affected by introducing, uh, you know, any, any other person into the family. And so, it's it's really not just about can you take care of this other child that you stay at home full-time and so you could do it. But it really changes the whole of the family dynamic to introduce another member of the family. And it's it seems to me a group decision in the end.
1: Yeah. I mean, I really do just feel a strong sense of what's most important to me is that this letter writer feels empowered to have this conversation more than once with her husband. Even if ultimately the answer is just my husband is not prepared and that makes me sad, but you know this is a decision we would need to make um, as a consensus rather than you need to get to one answer or the other. I think mostly my strongest sense here is you to it sounds like have only recently learned about this diagnosis and have only had perhaps one or two conversations about it Um, and I think perhaps some further research um, as well as reading up on some perspectives that you may not have come into contact with a lot before will, will make it such that you know you you might not get the decision that you want between you and your husband, but I believe that you can get clarity, that you can reinvestigate perhaps old reflexive ideas about what a life with potential disabilities might look like from people with, you know, actual stakeholding. You know, I think one of the things that I thought was sort of interesting was, you know, towards the beginning, the letter writer talked about being blindsided. And I don't bring that up to, like, scold the letter writer, but, like, right there, that's, like, language about blindness as, like, a a limitation, as an inability to um, move with new information in a way that feels, uh, like, integrated and, and prepared. And so... I think, again, without saying like, ah, this is a sign that you are, you know, bad and have not thought about disability sufficiently. I just think it's interesting that that word is present in that moment. I don't think it's an accident because I think there's this sort of question of perhaps my only engagement with questions of disability have had to do with sort of just like reflexive language around limitation, weakness, inability, Um, And this might be an opportunity to investigate how thoroughly, like, hostility towards people with disabilities and, like, the sort of, like, ambient eugenics that floats around in our society um, might be informing this moment of, I don't want to push our luck. I want to believe that we can control the, like, ongoing and predictable healthy status of our children, and that anything less than that would be unacceptable. Again, I just I, I hope that does not come across as like trying to slap the letter writer's wrist. That's um, a common expression. but I think that there's a reason that it came up in that moment, and I think that that's worth further investigation. Do you have any other thoughts or words of wisdom? I also acknowledge you are a parent and I very much am not. So you have actually also at one point in your life decided to bring a child into the world and then did it and then have you know taken on the project of raising a child. So you have some real expertise here.
3: Well, I mean, you, we were all of us children and have some kind of feelings about parents, even if we have complicated relationships or figures in our lives. But I remember Somebody saying that you should treat your own child as if they were an alien, that that's the most ethical way to see them as just however you have a child, a parent may expect that the child is like or unlike them or that they'll be intelligible in certain ways. And I think this parent was saying, actually, the best thing to do is to accept that you have no idea who this human being is and it's every child is terra incognita. And I wonder if, you know, just that, that baseline that in your child, there is a different person in some ways intersects with this conversation that you're initiating so wisely about what disability is.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I think that's so useful. I I can also really appreciate how the prospect of becoming a parent is an exercise in ambiguity, powerlessness, and vulnerability. And that there are a number of things about having a child that are are frightening and daunting for anyone because it just means, you know, my love is now incredibly vulnerable and external to me and, you know, requires around-the-clock attention and, and care. And that many people fear not being able to predict or control that child's experience of safety in the world. Um, But yeah, just really, I suppose I bring all that up merely to say that loving your children or wanting the best for them is not incompatible with um, hostility to people with disabilities or eugenics. And neither does it necessarily mean that you are either of those things, just that this is a really separate question. This is not a question of whether or not either of you love your children or would love a future child. That This has to do with, you know, a- attempting to reorganize the way that you see the world um, in a society that by and large is not set up to think of people with disabilities as, uh, you know, full, complete human beings in their own right. And that um, that is Good to reassess and good to reengage. I hope you have these conversations. I hope you're able to, uh, even if all you do is learn more about why your husband feels unprepared, um, so that you can move beyond simply know it's scary into. What would be my specific fears? What might we do to counter those fears? What would we like to do with this new emotional information? And I think that's the last thing that I have to say on the subject. I would really welcome, by the way, um, if anybody who is either like working within the disability justice movement or is living with uh, any kind of a disability who has thoughts of their own that they would like to share on the subject, please feel free to write in. We'd love to either have you on the show to discuss this more in depth um, or just to read some of your thoughts and feedback aloud. So just a blanket call on that front. I think we should move into our third letter, which I have to say taught me a word I had never heard of in my life. I had to look it up. Uh, It comes from the subject line.
0: I was going to say, it says the subject line is a goose gog again. Will you define a a goose gog before (laughs) before I read? Yeah, so I
1: looked it up and it's it's like British slang for a gooseberry. And I, I was familiar with the fruit gooseberry. I know you can make pies with it and you can also make a dessert called fool. And I guess goosegog is another way of uh, saying gooseberry, but with the sort of like implication of like a fool or a foolish person. So like...
0: Got it. I'm got just it. a goof. Okay. I'm a fool. Yeah. Got it. That's so interesting. Okay, cool. So here we go. Uh, it says... My two closest friends have started dating. Again, this is a pattern. Whether I'm in a tight three-person friend group, a larger group of work friends, or more recently, an online assortment of friends from my graduating year, the two people I care for most start kissing each other reliable as clockwork. I'm sure the trouble is me. I like to think I'm smart, a good friend, and not desperately unattractive, but I'm drawn to people who are amazing and they tend to wind up to more drawn in turn to each other than to me. I can't slope off as I have in the past. This time it's two of my best friends I've ever had and in different ways, they've both gotten me through the pandemic. This time I've also unfortunately been nursing a long distance crush on one of them. How do I deal with this? I think I'd be handling it better if this situation wasn't a recurring fixture in my life. Do you have any advice for the perennial odd woman out? I, I, where to begin?
1: <laughs> I had a pretty strong reaction to this. Not like intense, just like I had a pretty immediate sense of like, oh, I don't think this is a problem. Hmm. Like t- to me, this was like the way that this letter writer has framed it is sort of like, I-, I don't know if you were writing a sitcom, it might be a funny complaint for a character to have, but like this feels like sort of a version of like having that you know, main character syndrome of just thinking like everything revolves around me. People are consciously making decisions on, on the basis of their relationship to me. And it's just like, another way of framing this is I know a lot of people who have sometimes dated each other. Right. Which is just not that unusual. Many people start dating someone they met through friends. Um or uh, were friends with for a while before they started going out. I I would really be surprised if, if we were to do some sort of informal poll of all of the, you know, eventual couples that you're talking about, if all of them would say, yes, the letter writer was the sort of fulcrum of our relationship to one another. Like, that was how we knew each other. That was how we related to one another. We sat down one day and decided we'll either date each other or one of us will try to date the letter writer. Which will it be? And we always picked each other so much as... They would say, Oh, yeah, we were all part of a group. And then some of us started going out. And so I just, I think this sort of fixation on all of these people thought about dating me, decided against it, and chose instead to date a friend of mine who they think of as a friend of mine rather than a separate person just feels really um, counterproductive at best. Mm.
0: That's so interesting. So you know, my company is intentionally called Black Monarch Entertainment. I consider myself to be a social butterfly and have forever. And so I've definitely been in, in stickier situations where uh, I've I've pined after a friend or you know pined after someone who was taken or not taken, but not single, not available. Um, and you know those those feelings are natural and they they happen. So what I'll say is. I would investigate this feeling of I I really liked how you phrased it, Danny, of uh, main character syndrome. I'm definitely going to be stealing that. Um, it's something that it, I've been accused of. It's not original to me,
1: just to be clear.
3: Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's 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 interesting because I've I've also been accused of being sometimes like a self centered person, and for me, I I tend to frame it as well you know, I am the main character in my life and I am, you know, it's important for me to protect my peace. It is important for me to hold myself accountable. It is important for me to know that at the end of the day, when you lay your head on your pillow, it's you and you hope you wake up to, to live another day. So all of that is definitely true. But what I will say is, you know, though you are the main character, the most important person in your life, every other person in your life, they're not just secondary characters. They're not, it's not an ensemble. It's not a sitcom. They're not just there to service you, your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, and your emotions. And so there's also something here on the the flip side of this where there's something happening where other people's happiness is causing you pain. And I think that that's also something to really think about and to consider because with your with your, the people that you consider your friends. Friends are different than acquaintances. They're different than colleagues. They're different than family. They're in their own category, all of their own. And I think that there's something, I'll just call it what it is, something almost toxic about being the kind of friend who isn't happy when their friends are happy. And I understand that you know this this is a recurring pattern in your life and it does feel personal. But what I will say is, you attract the energy that you put out, and so if you are putting out this energy of of sourness, of you know displeasure, of things like that, when you do see friends of yours being happy, that's not going to help attract a partner, um, or not even a partner, but uh, a romantic interest. It just isn't. It's it's a it's like the opposite side of the magnet.
1: Yeah, I, I feel a little, you know, a, a twinge of guilt because I'm aware the letter writer is already being being very conspicuously down on themselves, and then you know, we're not saying, "Gosh, you poor thing, that's so awful. Um but letter writer, I don't say any of this to say like, you're uniquely selfish or this is all your fault or you shouldn't have any patience for your own frustration. Um, your feelings make a lot of sense. I don't think you need to think about yourself less. I would just encourage you to think of other people uh, as having the same degree of self-consideration. You know, complex, rich inner lives as you know you have in yourself. And again, that can be challenging because you know the inside of your own head and you don't know the inside of anyone else's. But you say, you know, this is a pattern. Is it like, again, like I don't know that everyone you've ever known who went on to date someone else would have said, gosh, first I was really close with the letter writer, but then I made a conscious decision to move away and date somebody else. Um, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. you are. Possibly inserting a pattern that, like, yeah, that could fit, but a lot of other patterns could also fit this just as well. And I think the key here for me is not like there was a friend of mine I was incredibly enamored with and I didn't say anything and I wish that I had. And then they started dating someone else. It's just this general sense of all my friends date each other and no one ever dates me. And again, I, I can relate to that general sense of frustration or self pity or loneliness, but you you can't date all of those people all at the same time. So the question is like, why isn't everyone trying to date me? Is not a fair expectation to bring to dating. I think maybe the question there is like, if I'm starting to develop a crush on a friend, what are my other options besides keep it to myself?
0: I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that because the, the phrase that just hit me while you were speaking was the long distance crush of it all. I think that Crushes are lovely to have. Uh, They make you feel alive and they're very exciting, especially in the early stages. But there's something about keeping any kind of feeling bottled up that's not healthy. And so in those moments, Letter Writer, when you feel like it's happening again, I'm, I'm having these feelings for someone and I'm unable to share it. Uh maybe maybe think of other ways to share your feelings. It could be writing... I actually saw this video on YouTube. It was a social experiment that happened a few years ago. But it was a series of guests sitting in a chair in the park. And there was blank pieces of paper and envelopes. And you basically got to write a letter to the one that got away. And you either... They were either going to mail the letter or they were going to keep it and say, or save it for the next person that sat down to read. And it was an interesting social experiment because so many of these people had never thought to write their feelings down ever. And so it's something to consider whether or not you share those words with someone else that that onus is on you. But I think instead of keeping these feelings bottled up similar to how you wrote a letter here, uh, consider writing it down, consider keeping a, a love journal, a little pink book, so to speak. I think that it's, it's a very healthy way. It's a very cathartic way to sift through and process all of these feelings that sometimes just feel like they're, you know, bottled up in your in your head and in your heart.
1: Yeah, I think that's really useful. I think anything that's going to help this letter writer maintain a more present awareness of her feelings and her desires, um, and then also try to figure out what are some things that I might want to try to do with those things. Maybe it's that I have a habit of befriending people. I would actually like to ask out on a date, but because for whatever reason, I don't Think they'll say yes, or I'm afraid of the risk. I instead strike up an overture of friendship and hope that they will simply be so won over by my delightfulness that they will ask me out. Uh, In which case, you know, you might want to think about what if I started asking people out? I I think, again, just. It's so easy if you feel really invested in this narrative of, I am always overlooked. I am always the odd one out. I am never going to get my fair due of what I see other people around me getting. It is so easy to become so attached to that view of yourself that you perpetuate it and say, like, if I asked someone out or I started speaking up, then it would mean that any potential romantic outcomes I would get would be fraudulent because I shouldn't have had to ask for it. Someone should have recognized that I was being a wallflower and walked up to me wearing like riding breeches and a beautiful signet ring and said, like, (laughs) I've noticed your exquisite loneliness and it (laughs) ends today. It's a lot of rom-coms. It's
0: a lot of (laughs) rom-coms.
1: Yeah. And just that fantasy that somebody else is going to do the work for you of naming what you want is going to hurt you a lot. And it's going to add a lot of unnecessary pain on top of the pain that we all have to go through as you know people and beings with desires and needs and hopes and fears. Um, and so I want you letter writer to start to spare yourself some of that. And so instead of, why does this always happen to me? Ask more concrete questions. Who interests me? What can I do with a crush besides linger with it forever alone in a corner? Um, And then also, you know, letter writer, it kind of sounds like you say you you slope off from your friendships every time your friends couple up, which again Mm. suggests to me that maybe you've been starting a lot of friendships that you actually want to be romantic relationships. And then when you don't get what you want, you kind of... Again, I don't want to be too harsh and be like, you abandon people. But it sounds like you kind of are just like, I'm done. And that to me suggests, again, that there's some work to be done in terms of making sure that you invest in friendships where you're not mostly just pining after someone so that you can have like a long, sustainable, friendly relationship that's not just cover for the torch you're carrying. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also... I love Danny that you are encouraging the letter writer to ask people out. I think um it's something that I think about in my relationship all the time. So, traditionally my girlfriend was courting me for many, many dates before we, you know, decided to be exclusive. And I had never gotten flowers on a first date ever. And I was like, this is so amazing. I don't even know what to <laughs> to do with this. Um I was so bowled over, but what became really fascinating was there was a there was a period of time where one day she asked me, "Have you ever taken me out on a date?" And I had to to really investigate myself and say, "Wow, we date each other every single day, but have I ever picked the restaurant, made a reservation, paid for the ballet, and like made sure that you were wined and dine?" And from that point forward. I really had to make sure that it's been a, a true balance in the relationship and in the partnership. And so that's something to consider too is, you know, what are these relationship tropes that we all believe that have to happen in order for a relationship to be successful? Do you have to be asked out first? Do you, you know, do you have to wait for the first kiss, you know, et cetera. And so I think taking some initiative, you know, in doing that inner work and that self work is something worth trying and, I, and it could really prove fruitful.
1: I think that is so, so useful and helpful. I just think again, not that you can never hope for like thoughtfulness or surprise in your life, but if you make a rule, I will get I have a better chance of getting the things I want if I ask for them than if I wait for someone else to guess. And so, like, for your partner to say, like, "I actually want you to do this for me sometimes." It's like, "Great. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. I don't live inside your head, so i don't I didn't know. And now that I know, I, again, not not that this goes to like, obviously, there are elements of like basic respect or affirmation that that I, I can understand you shouldn't need to ask someone for, but pretty much everything else you do have to ask. And again, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think it also just makes more sense than this idea of like, well, you know, I'm okay, but I'm drawn to amazing people. And because all of my friends are so amazing, obviously they're all picking each other instead of me. And it's just like, does that really sound, I I can understand why that might feel kind of self-soothing in a sort of self-deprecating way when you're like, gosh, no one ever picks me. But like, do you really think that everyone you've ever befriended is just categorically better than you? (laughs) And then if so, like, why are you surprised and sad if none of them want to go out with you? Like, again, I just, I, that story doesn't wash. Like that story yeah. doesn't yeah. actually stand it's some, up to scrutiny. It's some
0: me. circular reasoning for sure. It's definitely some circular reasoning.
1: It protects you because then it's like, well, what can I do? They're just more amazing. There's nothing I could do differently or try to change that would get a different outcome. They're just more amazing than me. And you have to admit that sometimes. And it's like, that's going to be a painful story you keep telling yourself, but that also paradoxically protects you from doing something risky or scary. Like saying, I kind of like you. Would you ever like to go out sometime? Which can just feel like I'd rather die. And it's just like, you don't have to do that. You can avoid it your whole life if you want to. But I think you've reached the limit of how well this story is serving you. And I hope you stop.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well said. Very well said.
1: My last piece of advice is, as always, to read Barbara Pym's Excellent Women because it is a uh, wonderful and thoughtful novel about the experience of a slightly prickly and slightly aggrieved woman who often finds herself on the outs. And it's always nice to read novels about complicated inner emotional lives of people.
0: I love that. Yeah. Thank you. What was the title again?
1: Excellent Women.
0: Excellent Women. All right. Adding it to cart. <laughs> yeah. Oh,
1: Olivia, thank you so, so much for taking your time to to talk with me today. Do you have any final parting thoughts for any of our listeners before you go? Also totally fine if you don't, and you just want to say goodbye, I'm going.
0: I do. I would say my very final thought that I would leave is be gentle with yourself. Uh, I think that as we hit on in this this conversation, that it's been a very tumultuous time, societally, culturally, personally. And it's really a time to just be gentle with yourself. That's that's the best I can offer.
1: Thank you so much. I think that is very lovely and compassionate advice and um I'm just so glad that we got to talk today. Have a fabulous rest of the day. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form. Or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening.